Okay, we are in Parshas B'Shalach. This is Tuesday's portion. And of course, in the end of Boi, we have the Jews being freed. And in Parshas B'Shalach, we have the amazing culmination of that freedom, which is the splitting of the sea. So leading up to it, of course, is a very harsh-looking situation, a very impossible-looking situation, where it's now the seventh day after the Exodus, and the Jews look, and behind them is a massive... Egyptian army, and ahead of the sea. And they don't know what to do. Should they pray? Some said, some said just surrender, go back to Egypt. Some said suicide, just fall into the sea and die. Some said that we need to, we said, I forgot which one I didn't say. We said pray, fight, oh, fight, sorry, I did not say fight. Some said fight with the Egyptians, we'll go down, taking them with us. Some said, we'll go back to Egypt, we'll give in, it wasn't so bad. Some said, pray, sounds pretty holy, and some said, just suicide. We don't want to go back, and we definitely can't escape. But that wasn't what God wanted. So, the verse begins in chapter 14, verse 15. Here we have Moses was praying to God, and God said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Speak to the children of Israel and let them journey. Meaning, God had already told them. We're going to Mount Sinai. We're getting the Torah. The only way to go to Mount Sinai is keep walking straight. You see in front of you a sea? Keep walking, which is a great lesson for us in our life because very often we have things that seem to place impossible barriers in front of us. If we're told to do something, if we know this is what God wants, we know this is what we have to do, we just keep walking. So keep walking. There's a sea. Keep walking. Not because you want to do some great self-sacrifice. Because You've got to get to the giving of the Torah. And if this is the direction, keep walking. There was, of course, one man who did just that. His name was Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, the head of the tribe of Judah, of Yehuda. And he saw the sea and he kept walking. Not because he wanted to die to sanctify God's name, because, you know, God said, go straight, go forward. You're going to the Torah. Then I see, keep walking. What's going to happen? God will take care of it. I don't know. I just have to keep walking. So this is, in essence, the message God is telling Moses, tell the Jews now. Don't do my stuff for me. You don't need to fight. I don't want you to pray. I want you to keep marching forward. That's what I told you. Keep walking. You're getting the Torah. So Rashi says that when Moses was standing and praying, God said, what are you praying for? The Jews are in distress. You have to take immediate action. Which, of course, would answer the question of, well, first of all, it's not very clear from the verse that Moses was praying. Rashi's clarifying that God's response, why do you cry out to me, implies he was praying. And what was the problem with praying? Praying is a good thing. Yeah, but if someone's in distress, do. Don't stand there and pray. That's the first answer Rashi gives. The second is, why do you cry out for me is implying the matter is dependent on me, not on you. If it was your prayers then the matter's on you. It's on me. It's my responsibility. Speak to the Jews and let them journey because that's what they have to do. The sea isn't a barrier. The merit of their forefathers, their own merit, the faith they had when they left Egypt, the sea was split for them. Of course, we know that. We know history. We know what happened. They didn't, but they were loyal and they kept walking and then God with the sea. The first man that went in, as we said, Nachshem and it says the water had to get up to his nostrils before God split the sea. 
And very often in life, we go through the same thing. We keep walking, and the waters keep rising. But then, when we do our absolute maximum, and in our head, tremendously beyond our maximum, the water splits. And you, lift up your staff, and spread out your arm over the sea, and split it. And the children of Israel shall come into the midst of the sea on dry land. And behold, I shall strengthen the heart of Egypt, and they will come after them. And I will be glorified through Pharaoh and through his entire army, through his chariots and through his horsemen. It's very interesting. A few years ago, Egyptian archaeologists actually found in the water the remnants of this massive army. And these Egyptian archaeologists said, this must be the army of Pharaoh. And we always thought, you know, the splitting of the sea was uh, a fable, was uh, symbolic. But it must have really happened because we see the whole army but we don't see any ships. So how can an army be in the middle of water without ships? This must have happened, for real. Egypt will know that I am God when I am glorified through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The angel of God, who had been going in front of the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud traveled from in front of them and went behind them. So at this point, we see two strategic steps. Of course, as you can see, none of these steps are necessary, which they weren't. But at the same time, even with the miracles, God works within the miracles naturally. So the angel went behind them. The angel who was in front, leading them, went behind to intercept between the Egyptians and the Israelites. That's it. When the Egyptians were shooting their arrows and catapult stones, the angel will be the barrier. Usually we know this is what was happening because usually when we say an angel, we say an angel of Hashem, which is God's name of mercy, but here it says an angel of Elohim, which is God's name of judgment. Now, this concept of the angel of Elohim actually means, even though here, of course, there was this mercy because the angel was protecting them from the Egyptian army, but it implies there was a judgment going on at this point. Do the Jews really deserve it? There's this enormous miracle God is making. Do they deserve to have this miraculous salvation, or should they perish like the Egyptians? That was one thing that happened, that the angel that was in front of them, guiding them, went be- behind them, between them and the Egyptian camp. The second thing that happened was a pillar of cloud that was in front of them, or behind them, also between them and the Egyptian camp. Now, when did the pillar of cloud go? Not at the same time as the angel, later, because when it became dark, by day they were led by this pillar of cloud. By night they were led by this pillar of fire. Because by day, of course, you don't need the fire to illuminate, but by night you did. Now, when it became dark, normally this pillar of cloud would just leave for the pillar of fire. But here, the cloud didn't leave as it normally did, but it traveled behind the Jews to specifically create darkness for the Egyptians. It came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night. And one and I approached each other all the night. So here we have, the Jews have the lights, as they always did in this pillar of fire, and the Egyptians, instead of benefiting from the Jews' fire, had actually even thicker darkness than would be normal because of this pillar of cloud that was blocking them. So what's God doing here? So Rashi said, it's as if a father's child with his son, when bandits come from in front, the father puts his son behind. When the wolf comes from behind, the father puts his son in front. And what if you have bandits in the front and a wolf behind? The father picks his son up in his arms and fights them. And that's what God is doing here. So we have all this darkness for Egypt and the pillar of fire, fire lighting up the night for the Jews. And the two camps, the Egyptians and the Jews, didn't approach each other all night. All night, we have it's sort of like this stalemate. The Egyptians are there, ready to attack, but they can't see a thing. 
it's very, very dark in, in their head. They can't, they're trying to fire at them with their arrows and their catapults. Nothing's happening. They can't proceed forward. They can't see, but, you know, in the morning, in the morning. In the meanwhile, in the night, God is causing the splitting of the sea. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and God moved the sea with a strong east wind all the night, and he turned the sea to damp land, and the water split. So specifically, the east wind God used here, because that is, as I gives many quotations, the strongest of the winds, that is the wind that God uses to punish the wicked. And the waters split. Now, obviously we got that. The reason why the verse adds it is because not just the waters of the Reed Sea split. All the waters of the world split at that time, which was, of course, a way of this miracle to be publicized throughout the entire world. Before cell phone communication or Internet, the whole world knew about what happened because all the waters of the world split. They were like, what's going on? What is happening? What's God doing? And they found out. Joseph of Israel came within the sea on dry land, and the water was a wall for them on their right and on their left. So this is actually now going through the water. God split the sea. The Jews see in front of them dry land. Of course, there are many, many details we're not saying. There were 12 paths in the sea, one for each tribe. Fruit trees grew. The children picked the fruits and gave them to the birds, and they all sang praises to God. They're going through this beautiful path, and suddenly, instead of the stormy sea, Beautiful path of dry land. That's what the Jews are doing. Now, the Egyptians, of course, are before the sea. And they see the Jews walking through the sea. And they, you could say, completely irrational move. Okay, the sea split. So we're also going to, we're in the thinking, wait, what's going on here? Well, this is a little weird. This is a little scary. And they're like, oh, okay, the sea split. So we're just going to keep pursuing them. And that's how the Egyptians stormed into the sea when all the Egyptians were in and all the Jews had meanwhile crossed and were out. God caused the waters to come back and drown them, every single one. Egypt pursued and came after them, every horse of Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen into the midst of the sea. The destruction by the sea, we call it the splitting of the sea, but really this is post the splitting of the sea, the resumption of the sea's normal pattern was greater than all the plagues of Egypt. There was more destruction. There were more spoils. There was more loss of life as God here is destroying Egypt. It says every horse of Pharaoh, which of course is in the singular, to imply that all these horses to God was as significant, so to speak, as one horse. Completely meaningless. And it was at the morning watch and God looked down at the camp of Egypt the pillar of fire and cloud, and he confounded the camp of Egypt. So the night, Rashi explains, is divided into three watches. And the one that immediately precedes the morning is called the morning watch. So again, all night the sea had, over the night, the east wind is blowing, the sea splits, the land dries, the Jews walk through with the flower trees, fruit trees, birds singing, a beautiful experience, amazing experience, a messianic experience to the ultimate degree. The Egyptians see what's going on. They're like, after them, race into the sea. The Jews stroll through. The Jews leave. The waters come and crash on the Egyptians in this final piece of that very special night. And God looked down, looking down, the term used here, 
the term of punishment, looking to do harm, because he was looking with his fire and this cloud to destroy the Egyptians with the fire and with the cloud. So how are the fire and the clouds going to harm the Egyptians? Well, the cloud descended and made the seabed like mud. So their ho- the hooves were getting pulled into it. Then the fire boiled it. So the horses are coming in this like quicksand-like mud that's pulling them in, in this hot, boiling mud. So they're like jumping away from the mud that's coming on them, which was creating this terrific confusion and terror. As it says, he confounded them. There was terrific, terrific confusion here. What is going on? As they're traveling through, not only is it no longer dry land, it's a sea, and it's a sea of boiling mud that's pulling at them. He removed the wheels of the chariots, and he led them with heaviness. Egypt said, I shall flee before Israel, for God is waging war for them against Egypt. So they finally got it. Hey, what are we trying to do? We're trying to fight God? Sounds so ridiculous. That is what they were trying to do. God's showing the most overt expression, and they kept going and going and going, and now they're like, we're trying to fight God. So he removed the wheels of the chariots because of the fire. We said the, the, the seabed became this boiling mud, so the fire burnt off the char- wheels, so the chariots are being dragged along by the horses in the mud that's boiling, so the horses are jumping around and trying to avoid the mud that's pulling at them, and meanwhile, the people in them are just being pulled and pulled and pulled and jumped and banged and this and that and tremendous, tremendous suffering, which, of course, God gave each single person exactly the degree of suffering he deserved. The more righteous ones perished more quickly. They didn't have to go through as much. And the more wicked they were, the more they had to go through to meet out to them exactly the pain that they had done to others. And here we see it says, God led them with heaviness parallel to them, Pharaoh and his servants making their hearts heavy. Here God is responding. Of course, God's way of operation is measure for measure. Based on what they had done, this is how they were treated. This is what happened in return. Of course, the evil we do always come back to haunt us, to bite at us, to create rottenness in our own life, as what happened here. So the Egyptians said, God's fighting them. God's fighting us. We're fighting against God. Like, we're, we're losers. That's the simple way of understanding it. Or, it doesn't mean God's fighting against the Egyptians, but God's fighting against Egypt. And in the same way the Egyptians that went out in pursuing the Jews were being stricken at the sea, the Egyptians that remained behind were stricken in Egypt. All of Egypt was now being destroyed, as per what it deserved, as per all the evil it had done to the Jews. Think of the Holocaust, which was nine years of torture. Nine, I'm sorry, I said nine years. Six years. Seven years of torture. Imagine almost 100. 114 some years of slavery, of which the last 86 were so torturous. And now God is giving them, in a small measure, the pain that they so much deserved and needed to experience everything they had done. 